0: Over the coming weeks, you're going to kind of get bits and pieces of what the Lord is doing in my life these last three months. Uh, For one thing, Margaret's biggest thrill probably was we got to sit together and worship for three months. (laughs) You know, uh, a lot of pastors' wives have, they've got children, so they're not sitting alone, at least a lot of the times when they're not with their husbands and... uh, uh, we, of course, don't. So it, she's got a great cadre of buddies back there in the corner that she uh, sits with. But it was, it was sweet to worship. We worshiped in a whole bunch of different kinds of churches uh, in the area. Uh, and that was uh, helpful and sweet and instructive and sometimes discouraging uh, as well. But I'll say every single week as we were in the car on the way back home, Margaret made me, would say, it makes me so glad for New Covenant. By the way, uh, next, if, if, you're, if you've been visiting or maybe you've been coming for a while and you, you'd like to partner with the church or just learn, learn more about New Covenant and what we intend to be about or you want to actually join, I'm going to start an inquirer's class next Sunday. Uh, sorry, Barb didn't know about that yet. So but we'll, <laughs> we'll have everything ready and we'll give you more information, but I just want to put that on your, on your radar screen uh, if you're interested in that. And if you could say something to me. Uh, or say something to Barb Pond just so and and make sure when you tell me I can write it down. Uh, That'd be great. Uh, This morning, the well, back in the 1960s, there was a book that was written called Your God is Too Small. And I'm not sure how many people read it. Tons of people and tons of pastors quoted the title at the very least all the time because the writer was at, at that season in history saying, you know, we've kind of shrunk and diminished our, our view of, of who God is. The, the first book I took with me that I really wanted to read this summer was called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And it was, it's really about God in his greatness, in his majesty. What is it that he is infinite? What is it that he's eternal? What is it that makes him God and so much different, transcendent? And we are and it, it was wonderful because it, I mean the theologians have written all these same kind of things I could have sat down with a whole bunch of other guys and read about these but this uh, this brother who's a, a professor out in uh, Oklahoma he, he wasn't he wasn't running for scholars he's writing for pastors and for fo- folks in the pew like you in fact if you want to get the book and read it along as we go through this series these next couple months uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see how it's shaping this, but I think you'll find it really helpful because he's really practical with it. But it whacked me so powerfully to just stop and deeply look at God and to reflect on him and who he is and, and what he's like. And, you know, it's easy to lose sight of who God is. One of the things I, I didn't mention on our, uh, on my Sabbatical, I read a whole bunch of books, a whole bunch, some, about four or five kind of different categories uh, that were really, You know, every time I'd get into these books, I'd be thinking, boy, we really need to be thinking about this and thinking about this. So it just was good to get my mind going. Uh, Got some projects done, spent two weeks power washing and staining the fence in my backyard, both sides of that, uh, to my neighbor's delight. As well as some other projects around the house, and um, had from wrestled took a couple trips, went to Chicago for a week, spent more time with my parents than since we've been married, so that was uh, sweet with them as they're in their 80s, and spent some time with Margaret's mom down in North Carolina, and she was up here some. Towards the end of September, we took a trip to Italy, which people say, What was your favorite part? I mean, it was all pretty extraordinary. But our last, we, we ended in Rome for the last two and a half days, and the, the bed and breakfasts I had in Venice and uh, Florence were very charming. The one in Rome wasn't necessarily so charming, but when you walked out the front door, if you looked down, a block and a half down there was the Roman Forum, which is where Julius Caesar was killed and where Paul would have been tried by, by Caesar and where everything took place. It was you know the, the downtown of Rome in that day. And if you took 50 feet to the corner, look to the left, you'd see the Colosseum, the Colosseum. And so when we checked in our first day and put our bags in, the first thing we did after we grabbed lunch was to to go down and see the Colosseum. It was kind of neat because we we, we had gotten, they've gotten like a Roma Pass that gets you into several different things, including the Colosseum. We walked up and they, once a year in honor of Augustus, they have free admission. And so there was no line. Not only were there no lines, there were no hucksters outside trying to sell you away to avoid the line, so we didn't have to deal with all the, all the, the carnies trying to sell stuff uh, around the edges. But we went in, and the, there was an, we were able to get into a tour guide group uh, with a gal who actually was an archeologist. And so needless to say, she was into the Coliseum. And it was just fascinating to learn about which parts are original and which parts had been added and how it was on packed and so on you know it's just it's the Colosseum that's when you go to Rome to see the Colosseum whether you actually go in there or not but because it was so close to where we were staying we were going past it all the time and I noticed by the third day as we were going past it and you would see all the crowds and they had lines because it wasn't the free day anymore I'd find myself saying yeah yeah I've been there done that. It's just the Colosseum Outside of reminding you how pitiful my heart can be, that, you know, it's, it's so easy to fall into that. And guess what? We do that with God as well. It's like, oh, yeah, I've been there, done that, read that book, read that verse. I've heard that before. And it could just be like water off a duck's back, can it? Well, the reason I found this, this whole issue of, of who God is so compelling is because I was convicted how across our Bible-believing Christian culture, in recent years, there's, there's been a diminishing of, of God you know, because there's, there's been an intentional a good seeking to communicate how accessible God is and how loving he is. And he is accessible and he is loving. But I think it's generally been not, not to deny his greatness and those, his transcendent attributes, but just to neglect them. And I've been complicit in that as your pastor, and I want to ask you forgiveness on that, but we're going to remedy that in these next two months. We're going to spend these two months, October, November, looking at God's transcendence to prepare us for December when we see when God came to be close through his son Jesus, his, uh, his imminence, as we say. You know, he, He's just his majestic, glorious infinitude that, that he, he blows our minds. You know, when Isaiah, in Isaiah 6... When he came into God's presence and he fell down on his face before God, it wasn't because God was so sweet. Right? It wasn't because he, he was softened by God's tenderness and being personal. He was awestruck at how majestic God was. I mean, the, the symbol of God's uh, majesty, his, his robe, it said it filled the temple. That'll knock you off your feet. Like, wow, this is a king. Like no king I've ever seen before. And Isaiah was a holy man. He wasn't one of these fake prophets who got converted. He was, he, was, he was already God's man. And yet, when he once again looked and saw who God was in his presence, it knocked him to the ground. Took his breath away. That's why it made him fear God. That's why God says... The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. To to realize, wow, this is the God that we're dealing with. And my goal in these weeks as we do this series is to help you see God and to think about him in a way that cultivates just this powerfully life-changing fear of God that makes you wise. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but also makes grace all that much more precious so I'm gonna read for you this morning not the passage that's in your bulletin sorry if you have a Bible uh, we're gonna be in Isaiah 40 now this, this series is going to be more topical thematic you know Tim just finished preaching through James we spent about a year going through Ephesians before that when we preach we normally preach what we call exegetically just working in a passage and we'll do some of that but a lot of because we're talking about topics We're going to be preaching from the Bible, by biblical truth, but we're not necessarily going to take a particular passage and pick it all apart like we normally do. But this passage definitely plants the seed. In Isaiah 40, it should be up on the screen as well. Hear the Lord. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You've heard from the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand him, see him. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. You. Lord, this is about you. Let us leave here gripped with you. Meet with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the idea that we're going to be thinking about is if, if God is, in fact, that of which nothing greater can be thought, then what, the, what does that mean? God, you know, what does that tell us about God? What's, what's true about God? Now, I do want to mention, as an aside, this is not about being abstract. I know some of you, all you, your eyes are rolling back in your head. You're thinking, oh, man, this is going to be just some heady. He's been off sitting up in an ivory tower and he's got to connect with, reconnect with life. My fence was very concrete, believe me. The, <laughs> uh, the Bible never speaks about God abstractly. Okay, it always talks about him as the living God. And that, that he is in relation, he, he relates to his creatures. And so uh, this is not gonna be heady impractical. It's gonna be talking about God so that it connects with our lives and where we are. This morning, the focus is on how your great God is incomprehensible. And the first thing I need to address is that he's incomprehensible, but, but he's knowable, okay? Incomprehensible means he's not comprehensible, right? <laughs> All right, so, and what that means is no one can comprehend God Okay, I know you're following with me. To comprehend means that you fully can wrap your mind and your head around something. You fully understand it. Get down to the the, the core of its being, of of what it's about. And nobody can wrap their minds about who God is in his essence, in his being, in his core. God, you, you know how in the last couple of years we say... It's a mind blower. Okay. That was God's first, kind of like the rainbow. Okay, God is the mind blower. That, that if we see who God is in his majesty, if we begin to see the edges of it it, 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 it will and ought to blow our minds. If you look at the meditation inside, the, if you've never noticed, for the four of you that open your bulletins, uh, the... Inside the cover page, I always put a little meditation quote. Stephen Charnock was a 17th century Puritan, English Puritan pastor. And he, he, he wrote this line about how when we think about God, we need to remind ourselves of this. He said, we need to remind ourselves what I just thought about is not God. God is more than this. If I could ever conceive him, he were not God. For God is incomprehensibly above whatever, whatsoever I can say, whatsoever I can think and conceive of him. That's what incomprehensible means. But it's different from not being able to know God. Okay, people, it's it's, it's not just that I can 85% get a grip around God, that, that he is, you know, who God is in his depths and his essence is way beyond what any of us here can fathom. But we can still, we can have true knowledge of God. You can have actual knowledge of God. Even better than that, you can truly and actually know God personally and who He is. He's, he's, his design is that He wants us to know Him, but we can never fully get our heads around who He is. Earlier this week, I, I was visiting with Ken Westcott, and he told me that he and, Ad and Adam went out west this summer. They went to the Grand Canyon. Now, When you say that you've seen the Grand Canyon, you mean you've seen part of the Grand Canyon, right? I mean, what it is that makes the canyon grand is that your breath is taken away because you just can't take it all in. Because it just goes and goes and goes. And it's not just out there, it's way down there, right? It makes you feel small. theoretically technically you could take a video camera and walk around with a lot of batteries thankfully you don't need film anymore but a lot of batteries and you could you, you know you could map out and show every single part of the grand canyon because it's part of creation god however is way, you know a pretty much like a bazillion times more than the grand canyon is unknowable and is unfathomable but you can't theoretically or technically him because he's not physical but you, you, you can't even take him in He's it's, it's that kind of you can know the Grand Canyon and get a sense of what the Grand Canyon is but you can't totally get your hands around it. That's why God takes our breath away. That's why the, the, the second verse, the last verse we read in our passage, he says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth and the whole cosmos as well, all the stars in the sky. He doesn't grow faint. He, does, he doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. He, he never takes his eye off the ball. He never takes a nap. He doesn't blink. His understanding is unsearchable beyond us, that, that his, his power, it's infinite. There's no limit to it. His knowledge is, is, is without limits. His, his presence isn't curbed anywhere. His, his wisdom is inexhaustible. It never runs out. And because they're, they're infinite, that's something that we can't comprehend. One, one of the things this summer, the first month was July that I was gone. Of course, in July, we were celebrating, what, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and so one thing we did, I did I'm like, is Margaret and I, we watched, recorded and watched a whole bunch of shows, probably like some of you did, about you know Apollo 11 and, and the, the landing on the moon. And, and part of it was just reminiscing because we were little kids when that happened. She was much littler than I was, we were little kids. Uh, and to see those things and to remember the hairstyles and the cars and the clothes and so on. But the, in watching it, you know, I, I know a bit about the rocket that they took a little bit but my my knowledge is not comprehensive in fact my knowledge is real minimal now there are some people who have comprehensive knowledge of the rocket but you know I I don't even know that one that was a primitive rocket 50 years ago with took computers to run it that you can put inside your apple watch today right you you can know God and you can know about God but you can only know in part about God so that's the first thing the second thing we uh, want to think about this morning is that God isn't just greater than us, but he's different in kind. And one of the things that Matthew Barnett and the, or Barrett, in the, in the book talked about is how we've had, there's been a tendency in the last couple hundred years, kind of started during, well, the Enlightenment was more than a couple hundred years ago, but it's been cultivating in, in a lot of circles, kind of theologically and into the church to, to want to make God like us, just bigger. And God made us in his image. And so we do reflect some of who he he is. But we don't reflect him in his essence. We reflect some aspects of him. And we're not little gods. We're we're human beings. we're, We're finite in what we can reflect. And he is of a whole different category. I mean, how do you get to know an incomprehensible God if he's not like us? I mean, you can't put him under a microscope, not just because he's immense, but because he's not physical, right? I mean, in science, if you're going to scientifically study something or affirm it, or you, you, the nature of science is that you put the object of study underneath man who then looks down on it and, and, and reflects on it. In theology, it's exactly the opposite. We put ourselves under God and the the way that you learn about who God is that you can know about God is you've got to have him tell you. Now we can see in nature some and and speculate, get some ideas that are pictures of him, but it requires his direct revelation in order for us to know him. And that's... That's how you come to know an incomprehensible God. Now, that, now I'm not saying that the key is you've got to be a Bible scholar you've got to be able to win all the Bible trivia quizzes. That's not what it's about, but it's about to know him. I mean, you do want to be a scholar of the Bible, but it, being the Bible scholar doesn't mean you know him. I mean, to know him is... We, we read this because this is what he has told us. This is what tells us who he is on his terms. That he describes himself to us. And that's, that's why in this church you hear so much emphasis on studying the Bible. That that's, that's the heart of what we do as a church. That's what we need to do you know, in, in our lives. Because to know God is to fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom because it drives you to look for Mercy you see who God is. What happened to Isaiah? He fell on his face. He says, woe is me. He was a prophet. He was issuing a prophetic curse. When the, when the prophet says, woe is, that means you're toast. You're under God's judgment. And he said, woe is me. He was under God's judgment. And what did God do? God, he sent the seraphim and they, they picked up the burning coal and they touched his lips and says, your sin has been taken away. When you, if, you, if you want to delight in what God has done for you in Jesus, and you don't want to be like I was about the Coliseum, about what we're going to do at the table, what Jesus did for you, you need to see God in his grandeur because it takes your breath away. And you plead for mercy. And, we, and, and when, when God's given his son Jesus, that's what fills you with peace. Struggle with a lack of peace? Stop and look at God. Look away from your stuff. Look away from your circumstances. Look away from yourself, your shortcomings. Look at who God is. And that'll, he'll point you to his son, Jesus. And that's where peace, that's where joy and hope are found. But understand, even the more we look at God, and the more you understand him, the, the more, he's a mystery. Okay, He's beyond our comprehension, right? He's, he's, even as you get to know him, you realize how much, I don't know him. I mean, Job, he said, for you say my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. He says, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold. That means he's got lots and lots and lots. You know, you say twofold, threefold. This is manifold, manyfold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? It's measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. See, it's it's hard for us in the 21st century to live with mystery, because after all, if you don't know something, Google it, right? Seriously, I mean, man. That got us through Italy. <laughs> Google works in Italy. Uh, you know, Wikipedia. I mean, you know, we, we having all that at our fingertips, it creates this sense that all knowledge is is, that, is is accessible for me. I can, I can, if I just look in the right place. And that's why we need to, to remind ourselves that God says in Isaiah, "For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways." For as the heavens are higher than the earth, which is way higher, so are my thoughts, my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your ways. Now, I'm guessing that probably most of y'all are familiar with those verses. Those aren't new verses. But again, we kind of like with the Colosseum, we, we can have so familiar, we forget to think, what, what does that mean? It means that in your life, we ought to expect significant areas where what God does and how God operates and who God is really doesn't make sense. That, that it's, it's hard to get your, your hand around and that it's too vast to comprehend. And, and he can't explain it to you because kind of like with your little children sometimes, you just got to say, trust me on this one, I can't explain it to you. Just because. Or sometimes he knows because he, one of his perfections is infinite wisdom, he knows now is not the right time of it. Just think of Jack Nicholson, you, know, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta hear God's voice in there, that, that he, he's, he's protecting us. And so, you know, when you're in deep thickets, you know, when, when, the, when the briars are kind of wrapping around you personally and you just got confusion, or uncertainty and you cry out to God to understand when he says sometimes so I mean sometimes he helps give you understanding, but a lot of times he says. Look, just trust me right now. I mean we seek God I mean the, the psalmist says, How long, oh Lord, why are you doing it? it's okay to ask God I mean here, here's how the pattern often goes for me i 'll be all wound up about something or beaten down about something or just hopeless about something and so I'll go to God and I'll just have my rant where I'm just saying, what are you doing? How could you let this happen? What are you thinking? And once I exhaust my rant, I've got no left breath left in me, but I stay sitting before God. You know, It's kind of like it says, okay, are you done? Now let's stop and think about who I am. And when he does that, that helps bring me back to my sanity. And I might do the scriptures or, or I might not get understanding but i'm reminded about who he is that's what always settles the matter that's what he did with job read the book of job sometime that's what the whole book of job is about you know you maybe you have decisions before you you want some guidance it's here god's given you parameters now usually when we say in our day we want guidance we want god to say take that step or take that step guess what God doesn't promise that kind of guidance. You can ask him and he might give you. He wants you to use wisdom, which is understanding his heart, understanding his parameters, understanding who he is and what his mission is about, what his agenda is. And then you ask God, help me by your spirit, to be wise and to humbly walk out. And then you believe that he's got your back. But not that he's got to give you the answers. I mean, I was a singles pastor for eight and a half years, and I know I've told you all this before, but I would have guys say, you know, call me up not infrequently and say, hey, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And they'd say, you know, just, I'm trying to decide whether to fish or catch bait you know, with this girl and uh, you know, whether we should go ahead and get married. And I, I wanted you to help me with the guidance. And I'd always warn them. I'd say, I'm glad to. But I'll warn you, you're probably scared to death and you want God to push you into it to say, that's the person but he wants you to have to keep a vow you're gonna make, so he wants you to man up and make the decision yourself. And pretty much every time I met with a guy, after I, I'd meet with them afterwards, and they'd usually say, you know, what you are saying was right, That's, I was kind of bailing out on that one to dump it on God. I said, you know, you gotta make the decision because you're the one who's gotta keep that vow. So when we make a decision, we, we trust God. He here. here Because he's infinitely powerful, and because he's infinitely wise and infinitely good, he's going to have your back. And even if you make a stupid decision, guess what? He's still got your back. And even if you make a good decision, he's still got your back. You may make a stupid decision, but it's not the wrong decision. You needed to make that because he just wanted to humble you a little bit. (laughs) You want to cultivate your dependence on him. He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. The last thing I want to wrap up with is that God's greatness that we see in this incomprehensibility, it's, it's a game changer. Actually, it's a, it's a heart changer. Okay? His greatness changes us. You know, When you dig in the details, when you look at the intricacies of God's choices and his makeup and his grandeur about who he is, and you look at it more and more, and you recognize it, and you take it in, and you really reflect on it, it will make you a, more of a worshiper. Okay? It'll have you so jacked up that you're going to want to be in here at 8.55, not 8.55, we could do that too, 8, 8, 9.25, sorry. You know, because you don't want to miss a second of coming before God to worship the almighty God who made everything, who's your hope. Or worship can be like the Coliseum. Yeah. blah, 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 I've seen it before, seen it, done it. It's God. He, he's, he's the one who's the different, and when, and when we see him more clearly, when we get a better grip on who we're dealing with. It actually helps you apply the Scripture because you start reading it, not just in the light of your life, but you start reading it through His lips. Say, like, "Wow, that's the, that's the God who said these things." That changes what I want to. I want to hear what He has to say, and how I receive what He has to say. His promises just have this gravitas. His commands. You the gravitas. It's, it's a heart changer. And if you really take in and you see what we're going to look at about God, hopefully it will fill you with wonder at how extraordinary it is. You know, one of the funnest things with children is when you, 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 you get to watch them see something for the first time and their eyes just get about this big, right? It's just, for all of us, it just tickles us. Why? Because we just see the wonder of the world. Wow, wow. That's worship. That's what God wants us to be with him. And, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. The opportunity for that is every single day to stop and examine who God is. And then the Christian life doesn't feel like this duty and this grind, but it's like this privilege. This is the God who's done done all this for me. That's why Augustine... A little history lesson. St. Augustine is a city in Florida. Augustine was a, was a bishop from North Africa. He was a st- a st- Augustine said the beginning of piety or, or of being godly, of, of, of walking with the Lord, is to think of as highly of God as possible. That's what we want to do these next couple months is to ratchet up how highly we think about God, that nothing limits God, okay? God's not needy, He doesn't change. All his perfections are perfections, and they're infinite, and they're unlimited. He has um, infinite power. He has infinite wisdom. He has infinite goodness. He has infinite holiness and purity. Not he has. He is those things. He's infinite love. He's infinite presence. And guess what? When you think about that, that makes Jesus more precious and more great than you ever imagined. Because Jesus is... God, right? Jesus is also infinite. It makes the incarnation that we'll deal with that in December. But it also means when he was sent by his father to accomplish yourself, your, your redemption, to save you, it means he did. No ifs and or buts. He didn't leave anything on the table. He accomplished it. I mean, only only an infinite Savior can rescue you from infinite holiness. I couldn't die for your sins. Tim couldn't even die for your sins. Because we're finite. You and I, us too, we have sinned against an infinite God. We need an infinite Savior. When you look at the holy perfection of God, it, it, it awakens you to the catastrophic condition apart from the infinite work of grace, which is what God's done. And if you're stuck in patterns of sin or of maybe of anxiety or of depression, you, know, you, you need to hear about, you need to see this, this almighty, infinite God to have hope. Not hope that you can dig yourself out of it. Okay, or you can straighten yourself up. But to see that he has the almighty power to change you. He can change you. But being infinitely powerful and infinitely good, he will in the timing of his infinite wisdom and out of his goodness. If, you, if you've given yourself, if you've entrusted yourself to Christ, there's hope. If you haven't, If you don't know Jesus yet, if you haven't pled with Him to be your Savior and made Him yours, then all that infinity is standing against you right now. And He wants you to bow down and lay down your arms and say, You're God. Who am I thinking? Receive me. Forgive me. Change me. Because that's what He does. We're going to the Lord's table. And we want to impress upon ourselves what he has done to bring you near. He's high and he's lifted up. My favorite verse is Isaiah 57, 15. This is what the high and the lofty one says. He who is high and lifted up and holy. He says, I dwell in the high and the lofty places. But also with the one who is lowly and contrite in heart. That's you. He wants to meet with you this morning. Let's pray. Oh, great God. We thank you. But although you're so different in essence and being than us, you're so apart, you're holy. Meaning that you're different. And we're just so puny as we feel when we look in the Grand Canyon or look in the stars in the skies. And yet you have made yourself known to us. You custom-made each one of us. You, by your Spirit, have worked in our lives, opened our eyes to see the work of your Son, Jesus, to bring us to yourself. And so we pray that you would continue to be opening our eyes. To see who you are in a way that would grip our hearts. Would make us worship, not just here, but even as we leave, we'd just be dwelling who you are and be amazed. You really are the amazing one. Be with us now at your table, as you promise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.